This is the Transcend Human Podcast, a weekly show where we learn what it means to rise above the human condition. We hope the conversation today is just what you need for the week ahead. Good morning, everybody. Welcome back to the Transcend Human Podcast. Actually, more specifically, the Conscience Driven Therapy Series. Um, So good to be with you again this week, January 17, 2022. All right. So last week, we opened up the series and we kind of did a short intro on what Conscience Driven Therapy is all about. And then we just jumped right into chapter one, which was a lot of things came before us. So if you did not hear that one, jump back and make sure you have that under your belt before you come back to this one. So in chapter one, we talked a little bit about the controversy, the sin virus, the human condition, and our DNA, right? The genetic predispositions that each of us carry. And we really talked about how all of those things came before us. Those are all things that we have absolutely no control over, right? So this week, we dive into a similar topic, again, something we have no control over, and that's our upbringing. But before we get into that, let's jump into a minute of transparency. So I'm just going to call this one, You Are What You Saw. Now, I know it's a pretty lame title, like an overgeneralization to be sure, but on some level, it's kind of true, right? Kind of like you are what you eat. On some level, it's stupid. I'm not pizza just because I eat pizza. However, it makes a little more sense when you realize that overeating can lead to being overweight. That makes you are what you eat a bit more meaningful. So similarly, um, what we see and experience growing up doesn't force us to be anything in particular, but it can also have a profound impact and shape us into the people that we are today, whether we want it to or not. So this is my story, or at least part of my story, and it's a part that's not very fun to talk about, uh, but it's a part that I can't deny or sweep under the rug, and it's one of those things that I've tried to be somewhat transparent about, knowing that when you just keep this stuff inside of you, it doesn't do any good. It just eats away at you, and it isn't helpful to you or the people around you. So it's one of those things you have to address and deal with, or it'll own you. Why? Because secrets have more power when they are secrets. Let me say that one more time. Secrets have more power when they are secrets. And the first step in dealing with a secret is to be transparent about it, right? To get it out there, own it, and allow people to help you walk through it. And then hopefully it'll be helpful to others in the process. So we'll go into this in a little more depth later in the series, but for now, just understand that secrets are dangerous, right? They keep you stuck in a place you don't want to be, and they can actually allow bad things to continue to happen because you're the only one that knows about them. They isolate you, and they make you feel like you're somehow broken, and they keep you from accessing the help and the support of others. I actually talked a lot about this this past year um, in episode episode 88 called Transcending Secrecy, talked all about secrets and the issues they cause and how transparency is really the antidote to those secrets. So if you're interested in this topic, you might want to go back and listen to that episode. 
uh, when you're done with this one. But back to my story, back to the part of the story that I don't really want to talk about, but I think it'll be helpful. So back in 1978-ish, somewhere in there, um, my parents moved our little family from Hinsdale, Illinois, which is just outside of Chicago, to a little town in Wyoming called Powell. Uh, There was a group of doctors at the Hinsdale um, Sanitarium and Hospital, and for some reason they got this into their mind that they wanted to go out and experience the wild, wild west. So they all agreed to move to Powell together and set up a group practice uh, so that, you know, the three or four of them would all have a place to work and work together and they could live out west. Now, I'm not sure how my dad factored in other than the fact that he worked in the laboratory at that same hospital. I'm assuming he heard about their story, did a bit of research, and then he found that he could move to Powell as well because there was a college there, one that he could teach at. So that summer, between my first and second grade school year, our family joined the caravan and we moved to Wyoming. Now, this isn't the bad part of the story, in case you were wondering. Our move and the seven years that we spent in Powell were some of the best years of my life. But the funny thing is, life isn't always good, right? Even during the best years of your life, some really bad things can happen. At least that's been my experience. So a few years into our wild, wild west experience, I found something, something I wasn't supposed to find, something that would change the trajectory of my life forever. We had moved from the country into town at this point, and in Powell, each of the houses faced a street, but also they had an alley that ran behind them, right? This is where your trash cans lived and where the garbage trucks could maneuver in order to pick things up. And as a kid, the alley was often used as my escape route right? Our bikes lived in the backyard. And when I wanted to get somewhere fast, I would just pop the back gate open and then jump on my bike and take the dirt alley back to the main road. Well, one day uh, I was exiting the back gate, getting ready to jump on my bike. And I noticed a box by my neighbor's garbage can. It seemed strange that it wasn't in the garbage can. So I opened it up just to make sure it was actual trash. Inside was a stack of magazines magazines with, you guessed it, naked people in them. I had never seen anything like this before. I mean, at this point, I was maybe nine, if that. So obviously, there was a rush of emotions. Something immediately told me, ooh, this is wrong. But at the same time, it was exhilarating, something that I had to know more about. So I hid the box, and eventually I worked my way through the entire thing, taking it all in, each and every magazine from front to back. Now today, This sort of thing happens in a much different way, right? You don't have to find porn in a dark alley behind your house. It's everywhere you look in some form or fashion. You see it on television, in the movies. It's hand-delivered to your phone. Sometimes because you're in the wrong place, but other times because you're just looking through your social media feeds. But for me, that's how it happened. Pornography in a box in a back alley. And I say it changed the trajectory of my life because it did. I was a different person after that. Not only had I lost a level of innocence, it happened so fast and in such a dramatic way. I missed out on the normal, slow progression that we're supposed to go through, learning things little by little in doses that we can handle at the age we're at. And instead, you're forced to stand in front of a fire hose of adult information and somehow make sense of it all. It was very confusing, to say the least, to a kid less than 10 years old, but it continued into my 
middle school years, into my teen years, even after the talk, if that ever happened, I remember trying to take all of those mental images and the the things that I had read and filter them through this new, more refined lens that I was supposed to have. Fast forward to high school, college, it was still there. This unhealthy fascination with sex, objectifying women, seeking out explicit material, and dating in order to fuel the appetite. Now, I'm assuming that most of you listening would agree with the pornography thing, right? That age 10 is not a great age for pornography. But as an adult, your opinions may diverge. I don't know. Some of you may suggest, oh, it's no big deal if you're an adult. I mean, it isn't illegal. And if that's your thing, you do you. I still remember watching Friends and Seinfeld in college. And the shows often worked pornography into the storyline. It was just funny. It was a joke most of the time, suggesting that everyone did it. It's not a big deal. And then there are some of you who may say, no, I don't know. Pornography is never really a good thing. It's dangerous. It impacts you far more than you realize. Not to mention that the industry is flooded with underage kids, runaways, sex trafficking, addiction, and all of those things. As an adult looking back, I tend toward the latter of the two opinions. Why? Maybe because I had that experience. Maybe because I grew up Christian and it wasn't ambiguous in my family. It was considered wrong. So for me, it has always been this inner battle, a secret that I've kept for many reasons. First, because I didn't want anyone to know. Second, because I knew for me it was wrong. And also, I knew that if I kept it a secret, I may get away with it longer. But these are all the telltale signs of addictive behavior. And at some point, I had to view it as such. It was an addiction that could go in one of two ways. It could be dealt with, guardrails put in place, and eventually removed from my life. Or I could let it continue to progress, and who knows where that would have taken me. So that's my story, the painful, transparent one that helps explain the concept, you are what you saw. Crazy, right? That one simple incident in my childhood could impact me like that for the rest of my life. But isn't that a story that many of us have? Not just pornography. Maybe for you it was a one-time incident of rape or sexual abuse. Maybe it was a long, slow process of emotional abuse by a caregiver. Maybe it was neglect as a child. Maybe it was growing up with a sexually promiscuous parent where you knew things you shouldn't know and saw things you shouldn't see. Maybe you had a parent with an addiction. Maybe you grew up with uh, a racist parent that taught you how to be racist. And the list goes on and on and on. Whatever the case, those things, the things that you saw and experienced are part of you. They had an impact on you. They shaped you into the person that you are today. Sometimes for the better, but other times for the worse. So here are examples of each, each kind of option, right? A girl is sexually abused at age 12. She grows up to become a therapist and an advocate for adult survivors of childhood sexual abuse. A perfect example of taking something bad and making something good come out of it. Next, maybe there's a boy who was physically abused when he was young and he never fully recovered. He eventually becomes an abusive alcoholic father to his own kids. Now, obviously, this isn't the happy ending we're talking about, but it happens all the time. It's the unfortunate reality called the cycle of abuse. Now, the important thing about these two examples is that they help illustrate our topic for today, which is we were sent in a specific direction. 
The idea here is that we all saw things, we all experienced things as kids, and that the sum of those things, all of those things crammed into our little brains, sent us in a very specific direction. And that's chapter two. We were sent in a specific direction. Today, we're going to talk about people, places, and things. Number one, people. The, fr- the phrase people, places, and things uh, isn't really as common as I thought. Um, in my head, I thought, oh, everyone, everyone's heard the phrase people, places, and things. But I did a Google search and I found, uh, or to try and find an article that explained it well, but I got nothing but media items, page after page with results for movies, books, and plays, all with this as the title. But that isn't what I was looking for. I was hoping to find a good article on the concept that came out of the 12-step programs, most notably Alcoholics Anonymous. And while it isn't one of the actual 12 steps, it is a mantra used by members of the group to describe what kept them drinking and what can keep them sober. So for instance, in an AA meeting, you might hear statements like this. These are the people, places, and things that kept me drinking. Or these are the people, places, and things I need to incorporate into my life in order to remain sober. Here's a more specific illustration. Let's say that a member of the group is talking about a recent relapse, right? And how they just did not see it coming. Another group member pipes up, people, places, and things, man. You didn't stick to your plan. Maybe the guy who relapsed started hanging out with someone that they used to drink with. Or maybe they started hanging out in an old neighborhood again. Or maybe they fell into old thought patterns thinking that they would never succeed, that they weren't, weren't valuable enough to stay sober. Whatever the case, the person fell back into the old habits when it came to people, places, and or things. And this is what that's always meant to me. Anytime I hear the phrase people, places, and things, that's what it means to me. And in this episode, we're going to talk about each of these things in a similar way, with the understanding that there are people, places, and things we grew up with that still impact us today. They influence our thinking, our behaving, and our feeling, the way we think, the way we act, and the emotions we experience every single day. That said, let's start with people. So when we look back on our childhoods, our upbringing, there is usually a short list of people that we would say impacted us, right? Here are just a few examples. Birth parents, step parents, grandparents, aunts and uncles, cousins, close family friends, teachers, coaches, camp counselors, youth pastors, theater or dance instructors, friends your age, and the list goes on. The important thing to understand is that people impacted you. You may not have everyone on the list above, and you may have people I didn't list, but you have your list and I have mine. So when discussing our chapter for today, we were sent in a specific direction. These are the people I'm referring to. These are the people who sent us in a very specific direction. Now, before we dive in, I want to separate uh, the people on our lists into two very important buckets. So bucket number one is going to be family, and bucket number two is everyone else. So let's start with family, which is a very broad term these days, I know. The traditional family with bio father, bio mother, and a few biological children is quickly becoming a relic, a thing of the past. Today, you're far more likely to see blended families where there are non-biological parents, where there are grandparents raising grandchildren. Uh, You have foster and adoptive scenarios, including gay and lesbian unions with adopted or partly biological children. So why am I making this distinction between biological and non-biological? Well, 
because of DNA, of course, genetics. There is no denying that your genetic material is a direct link to those who came before you, your biological father, mother, and even a few generations before them. So when I say these people sent you in a very specific direction, I mean it. It's kind of like a computer's operating system. So when I got my last MacBook Pro, it came with Mac OS 11.6, or what we call Big Sur. When I opened it for the first time, that was my experience. I got to experience Big Sur, which operates in a very specific way. You could say Apple sent this computer in a very specific direction by placing Big Sur on it. I mean, they could have decided, let's put Yosemite on this one. And that would have been a completely different direction, which for me would have been a completely different experience. And so it is with us. When we're shipped or when we're born, we come with an operating system already on board, which includes a number of things. First, it includes the genetic material that makes us human. It includes the genetic material that makes us the gender that we are. It includes genetic material passed down through our family, things like hair color, eye color, height, all sorts of things. But it also includes medical issues, right? So a classic example of this is hemophilia, a rare blood condition that does not allow blood to clot. And there are many more, high blood pressure, heart disease, certain forms of cancer, all passed down from generation to generation. And another area being researched today is the genetic link to mental health issues. So when I was a practicing clinician, I can remember a psychiatrist explaining that psychosis, as seen in schizophrenia, could basically be passed down genetically. Uh, sometimes from one generation to the next, other times it would skip a generation or two and then show up again. But if it ran in a family, the psychiatrist would look for that psychotic symptom in a patient around 18 years of age. But it's not just schizophrenia, right? The research is starting to suggest more common mental health issues like depression, anxiety, all those types of things that could be passed down as well. The good thing is that genetics is only one piece of the puzzle when it comes to mental health, right? There are environmental factors and experience factors that play a very strong role as well. And finally, our operating system comes with the SynVirus pre-installed, right? Good for us. We discussed this last week as well, and we called it human nature. The underlying angst that affects and afflicts the human race. The idea that it's always easier to do the wrong thing than the right thing. That being good is usually harder than being bad. For example, we're born selfish. It isn't something we have to learn. As children, we come out of the womb expecting the world to revolve around us. So those are all things we talked about last week, right? Those are all things that came before us. And part of the people section is that biological piece that came along with it. This is the baggage, if you will, that is handed down from our biological families. But that's only half the equation, like I said. So today we want to dive into more of the second part, which I'm going to call the exposure principle, right? So this is the environmental impact that comes through our families. This whole idea that by simply living with a group of people for that long, we will be impacted by them. They send us in a very specific direction because of the many years of brainwashing or what we would call parenting or whatever. I probably shouldn't use the word brainwashing. But anyways, on some level, it's true, right? When you hear something over and over and over and over again, you are kind of being brainwashed 
into a belief system. Now, in our family, we used to tell our kids, life isn't fair. And we would tell them that over and over and over again, typically after they whined about something or somebody getting something that they didn't. In essence, we were trying to brainwash them. We wanted them, their brains washed of this idea that life it has to be fair, that it needs to be fair. That if one kid got to go to a sleepover, then all three should get to go to a same, the same sleepover. Now, in this scenario, you're probably okay with me using the term brainwashing, right? Because it's parenting, it's upbringing, it's teaching, it is what it is. But we all know that brainwashing isn't just used in scenarios like this, trying to teach our kids to be good adults. Brainwashing has been used for evil, telling kids over and over that they won't amount to anything, telling kids over and over that people don't deserve to live, telling kids over and over that the political party that um, somebody else believes in is made up of the enemy, telling kids over and over again to put the toilet paper so that the loose part hangs at the back of the roll. <laughs> ha, I was getting a bit dark, so I felt the need to lighten the mood. There is a right way to put toilet paper on, by the way but I'll let the, I'll let you figure that out. So you see what I'm saying, right? The exposure principle includes, but is not limited to the following, how we were parented, things we were taught, the way our families communicated, the amount of physical touch allowed in the home, the way that our parents presented the world, religious ideation, political ideation, etc., the way that siblings interacted, the cleanliness of the home, the work ethic displayed, uh, the perceived locus of control or the control you were taught you had, what was acceptable behavior and what wasn't, how other people should be treated, um, how to respond to authority, authority figures, and the list is seemingly endless, right? At the end of the day, our family of origin, no matter if it was a traditional family or a modern family, they sent us in a specific direction, both genetically through the exposure principle or I should say, both genetically through our biological family and through the exposure principle, no matter who your family was. So for those of you keeping track, we really just talked about nature versus nurture, right? So I'm, I'm suggesting that it isn't one or the other. It's both and. Both our nature and the nurturing that we received help send us in a specific direction. Now, I don't want to get bogged down here, but there are a few important concepts to understand so the first is what we call transgenerational theory. Stuart Lieberman wrote an article called A Transgenerational Theory, which was published in the Journal of Family Therapy in 1979. And in the article, he set the stage for some of the things that we just talked about. So that there is an important connection between us and those who came before us, a connection between generations. Uh, he discusses things like bonding, family patterns, family losses, family replacements, and family secrets. But this is really high-level stuff, right? Um, but these are the ideas that kind of spawned the movement of transgenerational theory. Next, you have family systems theory. So the psychiatrist Murray Bowen um, began adding to that field of research, and he came up with the family systems theory, which echoed a lot of the same ideas that transgenerational theory did. And out of these two theories came actual forms of therapy, and many of these are still practiced today. So you have transgenerational family therapy, family therapy, um, also said to have been started by Alfred Adler, and then family systems therapy, which was created by Murray Bowen. But all of these forms of therapy have one thing in common. 
It's this idea that our family of origin sent us in a very specific direction. Okay, time to shift gears away from the family a little bit and talk about everyone else on our list. Again, my list is different than yours, but every person on that list is important because they impacted us either for good or for evil or somewhere in between while we were growing up. So let's look at some examples from each. So first, examples of people who impacted us for good. Um, Let's say a coach that not only taught us to play soccer, but taught us ownership and the importance of teamwork. A teacher that kept us from falling through the cracks, telling us, believe in yourself. A neighbor that let you come over, and when things were out of control in your house, they showed you love and acceptance. A youth pastor who may call have called out your value when nobody else did. Uh, a high school friend that listened and gave good advice at a time when you were thinking about making really bad decisions. Now let's look at a few examples of people whose impact was negative or evil in some way. So let's say a dance instructor who never let you forget that you were a few pounds overweight. A teacher who called you out in front of the class and made fun of you for being a Christian. Uh, A neighbor who allowed you to come over and then allowed you to watch inappropriate movies with their kids. Uh, A friend who always pushed the envelope with drugs and alcohol and always pressured you to go along. A youth pastor that you trusted but broke that trust and tried to start a physical relationship with you. Now, I understand this opens up a can of worms for so many of us, so many emotions, so many questions, so many things left unresolved from the past, right? And while we can't resolve all of those things here today, there is really good news. This is what conscience-driven therapy is for. At the end of this series, we should have a really good big picture view, an overview of the way conscience-driven therapy works, and how it can be used to resolve many of these things still causing us grief today. Conscience-driven therapy is a construct, a framework that can be followed to help us rise above the human condition or transcend the human condition, to deal with the hand that we've been dealt, and to proactively chart a new course for our future. A course that will not only help us live better lives, but will break cycles in the family of origin that we're creating for our kids. Number two, places. So the next, the next part is about places. So not only did the people in our lives send us in a specific direction, but so did the places we lived. Now I know this might sound a little bit strange, but the idea, you know, the idea that an inanimate object has the ability to influence us on some level, but after we flesh it out, I think it'll make more sense. So let's define places a bit more. When I refer to places, I'm referring to all of the following and more. One, the physical home you grew up in. Two, the street you lived on. Three, the neighborhood you were part of. Four, the school you attended. Five, the places you worked. Six, the church or churches you attended. Seven, your town or city. Eight, your state. Nine, your country, etc., etc. Now, I'm not saying that all of these places had a negative impact on you. Just like we discussed with people, places will have both good and bad elements. Some of the places you spent time provided positive things in your life, but some of the places where you spent time may have injected negative things into your life. Now, we don't have time to walk through every scenario in detail, so instead I just want to talk about some of the ways that these places impact us. And in order to do that, I'll use Maslow's hierarchy of needs as a guide. So we'll start with the most basic and work our way to the top. 
at the very bottom of, of Maslow's pyramid is what we call physiological needs. So the need for food, water, and shelter. So think back to the home you grew up in, or maybe the neighborhood or country. What was it like? Were your basic needs met? Did you have water, food, shelter? Did you have anything or did you have everything you needed to survive? Or were there times when you lacked these things, these basic resources because of the environment you were in? Dealing with a lack of basic needs on any level can have a huge impact on your life and your future. Next, you have safety needs. So the need to feel safe and secure. Was your home a safe place? Was your neighborhood or city a safe place? Was the country you lived in stable? Or did you even know from day to day what might happen to you? Living in an unsafe environment for any length of time can impact your life in the future. Next, you have belonging and love needs. So having intimate relationships and connections. Often this is based more on people than places, but what was your environment like, right? When, it, when you think about all of the people in your life, the community of people, your family, um, will people be trying to make and keep friends um, or will they, are they just focused on survival? Or what if you grew up in a cult where there were really unhealthy boundaries and rules about who you could talk to? Uh, growing up like this might change your ability to understand what real connection looks like. Next are the esteem needs. So the need to feel accomplished, that you're providing value in some way. Again, the ability to feel accomplished often comes through relationships, people telling you that you're doing a good job, people paying you a lot of money to do the things you do, your popularity in the community. But again, places can have a big impact on this. For example, if you live in a poverty-stricken area, you may not have the opportunities to learn and become accomplished at something. If you live in a culture where there's a class system and you find yourself in a class with no power or position, it might be hard to fulfill the need for esteem. And then finally, self-actualization needs. So this is, this is the very tip of the pyramid for Maslow. It's the kind of the last thing. Once all of your needs are met, then you have this ability to self-actualize. So it's the need for morality, creativity, spontaneity, purpose, and meaning, which is really broad, right? But essentially what Maslow is suggesting is that these needs are cumulative, right? So you have to have the needs met in the previous categories before you can really address the ones in the next category. So let's bring it back to places. Let's say that the school you attended is an inner city school where violence is a daily occurrence teachers spend most of their time managing the behavior in their classroom, you're not challenged to be creative or to find your meaning or your purpose in life. This will continue to be a need in your life because of that. Or let's say you grew up in a home where there's an atheist or a nihilistic uh, parent, and your need to develop a sense of morality may not be fulfilled in this setting either. After all, if you believe in survival of the fittest above all else, that is your morality. And abiding by cultural or social norms might be difficult, especially when these norms are based on religious values that you've never even heard of before. Like I said, this category is very broad, and it includes things like the religious climate you grew up in, the political climate, the level of openness in your community, um, liberal versus conservative, the socioeconomic level you grew up in, uh, the level of diversity you experienced during your upbringing, and how integrated that diversity was. Uh, maybe the social climate 
of your upbringing? Like how, how does your community deal with racism and sexism and other forms of prejudice? And then the importance of social justice in your community. Were people protected or did people just look the other way when bad things happened? Number three, things. So we've talked about people who sent us in a specific direction and we've talked about places that sent us in a specific direction. And that leaves things that sent us in a specific direction. Now, we aren't going to spend a lot of time on this one because the idea that things happen to us when we were growing up is a much bigger topic, right? One that we will go into great detail next week. But for today, let's just define what we mean by things. So people are all about relationships and interactions. Places are all about locations and environments. And things are everything else. I mean, we could say that things are events and incidents, but I feel like that would be way too simple. Um, and I'm forgetting things that should be in there as well. But looking at things as events or incidents does work on some level, and they are distinct in the following way. Things may include people. Things may include places. But a thing is an event or an incident that happened at a given time in your life and had a profound impact on you. The kind of impact that sent us in a specific direction. So let's just throw a few examples out there. So an incident of sexual abuse, right? Obviously this involves or overlaps with people or a person, but it is a thing, right? Because it's an event or an incident that happened at a specific time in your life. Or maybe a minority living in an all-white neighborhood and one night a, a rock is thrown through your window with go home written on it. Again, this involves people. It involves a place. But it was a thing, an event, an incident that happened that you will never forget. And finally, let's say you're living at a hotel when a, a tsunami hits and you barely survive. Unique, right? Does not involve people or at least people didn't cause the event. It does include a place right? One that you may be living in or one that you were visiting, but it's a natural disaster, an event, an incident that you can't attribute to a person or a place specifically. It simply happened and you were impacted by it. Now I'm shining a spotlight on the negative, right? Bad people, terrible places, horrible things. So before we go any further, let me remind you that it works both ways. Just as there were good people in our lives, and negative people in our lives, just as there are good places and not so good places, so too there are good things we experience along with the bad. And when we talk about people, places, and things sending us in a specific direction, we aren't just talking about the bad stuff, though the bad stuff often gets all the blame for the way we turn out, right? We look at our pasts and immediately blame our poor decisions today on the bad things we went through back then. But what if we looked at it differently? What if we recognized that the good things we experienced actually balanced out the bad? That because of the good things, we didn't go off the deep end. That our lives could look completely different if it wasn't for that one person or that one place or that one thing that happened at just the right time. This is the balance we need to have when we look back at our upbringing. We can't look at the good and ignore the fact that bad things happened. That isn't helpful. We can't focus on the bad and pretend nothing good happened. That isn't helpful either. We need to be honest with ourselves that we've experienced a handful of both. We need to be thankful for the good and focus on it from time to time uh, in support of a healthy worldview. 
but we also need to recognize that bad things happened and that they may be impacting us in a negative way still today. This is the balanced approach that we need, especially as we move into next week's discussion, which will focus mainly on the bad things we experienced in life. So let's land the plane. In chapter one of conscience-driven therapy, we discussed that before we even start to look at ourselves, we must understand the truth that a lot of things came before us, right? These things must be understood. We can't just give them lip service. They need to become part of our worldview. They need to inform how we look at the world, how we look at our lives, how it impacts us, how it impacts our interactions with other people. Only then will we have an appropriate foundation upon which to build a more solid structure. Then today, in chapter two of Conscience Driven Therapy, we discussed when we were kids, there were forces acting upon us, people, places, and things that influenced who we were becoming, and that these influences sent us in a very specific direction. However, while it is true we were sent in a specific direction, it doesn't mean we have to continue in that direction. Yes, it's hard to deviate from your path when you're moving quickly in one direction. That's just science, right? Newton's first law of motion, or law of inertia. An object in motion will remain in motion with the same speed and direction. So there it is, proof that when we were sent in a very specific direction as kids, we are likely to remain headed in that direction. Hence, the cycle of abuse. But luckily, there's a second part to Newton's law of inertia. It says, an object in motion will remain in motion with the same speed and direction unless acted upon by an outside force. And there it is, the catch, the loophole, the out, the way to change directions at any point in life. Even though we were sent in a specific direction, the ability to decide that that isn't the direction we want to be headed in is there. There is an outside force that can alter that direction. We're going to spend time talking about this in chapters 4 through 10. But for now, just understand that people, places, and things had a very big influence on who we are today. This week, ask yourself the following questions. Looking back at your upbringing, list a few people who were good influences in your life. List a few people who had a negative impact on your life. Number two, think back to the environment you grew up in. What were some of the positive things about your community? What were some of the negative things about your community? And finally, number three, when you think back, what were some really good things that happened in your life? And what were some not so good things, some negative things that you experienced? All right, another episode in the books. Join me next week. Uh, we're going to dive into chapter three called There Were Landmines Along the Way. So looking forward to being with you next week to talk through that. Uh, have a great week, everyone. And as always, keep transcending human. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Transcend Human podcast. If you're interested in the show notes for this episode, head on over to transcendhuman.com forward slash podcast and navigate to the episode you're looking for. On the website, you'll also find blog posts, podcast series, and other helpful resources to help you navigate the Transcend Human ecosystem. 
You'll also find links to our social media channels. And as always, if you have questions, feel free to contact us at info at transcendhuman.com. Have a great week, everyone, and we'll see you back here on Monday morning.